0: Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500.
1: Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500.
0: Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5 The Band. There, good evening to you. My name is Jake Query. Sam Rumsa is on the big board. Mike Thompson joins me on this program as well. This is Beyond the Bricks. We are happy to do this for the week leading up to the. I'm going to see if I can say this correctly, Mike Thompson. Big Machine Spiked Coolers, but I don't think it's a 400, right? Grand Prix? Road Course? What are we calling it, Mike? Do you know
1: exactly? Uh, I'm still calling it the Harvest Grand Prix, so I'm glad you got the sponsor <laughs> mentioned in there because to me, it was... It, I, I actually called it the Harvest Grand Prix the other day and somebody said, no, it's the Big Machine Grand Prix. And I, I said, okay. And so uh, I'm, I didn't even you know get the fact that there was a sponsored tag already on this one unfortunately so uh yes so it's the big machine to me it's the big machine harvest grand prix but uh i think that's not the official title
0: okay now hang on the big machine spiked coolers grand prix and you have the Pennzoil 150 at the brickyard and the verizon 200 at the brickyard so we got all those in right we but got them all in here is the thing mike uh last night you know, obviously, this program, and for those that are unfamiliar with it, welcome. We're happy to have you. This is a show that we do, and we did starting out in the month of May, that just kind of talks about beyond the bricks, some of the storylines, the from a historical standpoint, the personalities, the pomp and circumstance that goes into the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And of course, this is NASCAR Weekend, and now a doubleheader NASCAR IndyCar Weekend with Xfinity as well. The anticipation, of course, and the game plan was that we would have started talking about those things last night. And then, of course, yesterday at 4.30 in the afternoon, word came that we had lost Bob Jenkins, the legendary voice from television, radio, and public address of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, as well as a dear man and a good friend to both Mike and I and most of you who are listening to this show. So we wanted to make sure that we spent the day yesterday talking about Bob, and we could certainly spend a lifetime talking about the generosity and the greatness that is Bob. But today, we're going to talk simply about this coming event and kind of the ebb and flows and the changes, if you will, about NASCAR, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and everything that goes into it. Mike, let's begin with this. I can recall back in the early to mid-90s when the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and I think most people know this, but it was a one-trick pony. It was a one-race event. And, I mean, obviously in the early years that was not the case. This was a, a track and a venue that had all kinds of different events that took place in it. But we had become accustomed to, and what we knew of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for lack of a better phrase, was they unlocked it on May 1st and they locked that bad boy up after Memorial Day, and that was it. And then all of a sudden, Mike, in the early 90s, the rumblings came about that, in fact, another race was going to come to IMS.
1: Well, I mean, it's hard for some people to really to remember how huge the 1992 test was. I I mean, I remember – the guys leaving Michigan because I used to cover the Michigan NASCAR races when I worked in Toledo and they came straight from the the Michigan the the, the June race in Michigan came straight to uh, IMS for the first ever test and you know there were 25 30,000 people at that test and it was a huge, huge deal. ESPN was there, and and you know it. It was a, a you know the the idea of the test was, you know, it's a feasibility test, obviously, but they're not announcing that it's a feasibility test. It was really just to, you know, behind the scenes, that's what it was. Um, it was it was presented as a tire test. Hey, we're just going to test some tires, but that's not really what it was. It was, hey, how are the stock cars, the NASCAR stock cars, going to run at IMS? But I remember what a massive, massive deal this was that that the NASCAR, uh, you know, the cars and stars of NASCAR were coming to IMS. And and I remember there's a couple guys that I really wish had had the opportunity to drive in the Brickyard. 400. And one of them is Davy Allison. Davy took part in that first test, um, and he was just beaming the whole day he was here for that June test. And I, I got to talk to him about it very, very briefly in August. When they came back and I, and I knew Davey, I, I don't want to present myself as Davey and I were friends. I mean, I did know Davey fairly well. I, um, I did a couple photo shoots with Davey when I was really, really young and breaking into racing. And I mean by really young, I mean, I'm talking 17 years old and I was breaking into racing. And Davey was one of the kindest souls you'd ever want to meet in your life. Um, and he put up with this 17-year-old kid following him around, taking pictures of him for Champion Spark Plug. It was one of my first racing gigs that I ever got. And I was trying to impress my uncle Bill who helped me get the gig. And, you know, I basically really had no business even being doing this, but, uh, you know, he was one of the nicest guys in the world and he's, you know, helping me out. And, and so I knew Davey a little bit and we had a really brief media availability with Davey on Thursday and he had actually been injured in an accident at Pocono and he was pretty beat up. And, the only smile I could get out of him was I mentioned the Indy Tire Test. And I said, something really is, you know, sometimes, Jake, you're in those media scrums and you, you get to fire one question as they're walking away. And, and I got to say something about, you know, how was that driving at the brickyard? And he came back to my microphone and he, he just had this big smile on his face. And he goes, it was awesome. And he goes, and I think it's going to happen meaning i think there's going to be a race you know eventually in the future and i just remember how happy davey was about that because later that day his brother clifford was fatally injured in an accident at at imis and i just remember how you know happy davey was for that you know couple minutes talking to him about about ims and about the tire test and then you know later that day he lost his brother and you know, we lost Davey the next year, and so Davy never got to participate in the in the Brickyard 400. And the other guy I think about during that time is is Tim Richmond and how much fun Tim Richmond would have had driving. Oh man! You yeah. know, you think about Tim Richmond, and I I knew Tim Richmond a little bit as well, and I covered him a lot because he was an Ohio guy, and you know there weren't too many Ohio guys obviously in NASCAR, so we we covered Tim Richmond pretty pretty heavily at, in my station. And I just think about Tim Richmond and I think how much fun Tim Richmond and Dale Earnhardt would have had running together in the, you know, the first couple of Brickyard 400. So, you know, that's kind of what I think of, but, but people, people may not remember what a huge, huge deal that was. Uh, once they finally did the announcement that there would be, you know, a Brickyard 400, you know, they came back. And all the teams took part in the test and and that was a huge deal um, because you know, everybody was there, basically. I mean, all the third I think all 35 teams were there. and I, I mean, I remember Richard Petty, Richard Petty actually drove the 43 and then he donated a car um, to IMS. and I mean it was it, it was just a another a really, really big deal. but um, one of the things that always gratified me about that was, you know, There's always been this thing, and I've I've really never understood it, which is the, if you love IndyCar, you have to dislike NASCAR or vice versa, which I've never understood. We're all race fans. You know, I grew up going to NASCAR races in MIS. I grew up going to the IndyCar races in MIS. And to me, it was all racing. And I, I love the fact that I had three weekends a year, four weekends a year at MIS that I got to go see racing. And some weekends I was up there cheering for Richard Petty. And some weekends I was up there cheering for Rich, Rick Mears or the Unser's or whoever it was, right? So it did gratify me, though, when they did the tire test that so many of the guys were so respectful of IMS and so much, you know, they were so much in awe. I mean, I've got a lot of photographs of Dale Earnhardt from that first test, the, the 1992 test with his pit crew, and they were taking shot after shot after shot, at you know, team on pit road. Do you, know, you think, Mike,
0: I mean, when they when they were taking the early tests, surely they knew the reality of the fact that Tony George had met with the Francis and there was discussion. I mean, obviously there's a reason they're testing there, but do you think that they really grasped the likelihood that within two years they would be running a full race there?
1: I think, like I said, when I talked briefly to Davey, he gave me that kind of glint in his eye was like, you know, I think it's going to happen. I think that there were maybe some of those guys thought, hey, maybe this is the only opportunity I'll ever get to drive this this track, and they were. I mean, again, Dale Earnhardt, he and his he and his crew, they took picture after picture, and I mean, I have I have dozens of photographs of these guys, and and they're all lined up together, and 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 I mean, it it looks like the traditional qualifying shots, you know, that you, we see in May. Um, you know, everybody's basically lined up, you know, to get their shot that they were there at IMS. So, you know, I think you're right. I mean, I think there there may have been some of them who knew that there that there was talk of the fact that there was going to be a, a stock car race. And then I think some of them may have just thought, hey, this might be the only opportunity I ever get. Well, I yeah. Mean, I mean, these were, you know, and and don't forget, uh, at one point of the day, it was interesting because uh, uh, AJ got in Dale Earnhardt's car, you know, and then we know once once the announcement came, AJ actually came out of, you know, quote unquote retirement um, to to run the first Brickyard 400. And, and that was that was obviously exciting for the fans that AJ was in the race. And, and, you know, I know we'll talk a little bit more about the the 94 Brickyard 400 and what a what a big, big deal that was. But but you had I mean the big stars of the day were in that first test. I mean, you had, you know, Ricky Rudd, I know, was there, and, and Rusty and and Ellie, Bill Elliott was there, and, Dave, like I say, Davey was there. And, um, you know, I just remember all those guys being so respectful and saying, you know, we never thought we'd ever get a chance to do something like this. and And that gratified me because, you know, they could have come and just been like, yeah, this is just any other place. You know, and and they didn't do that. They to them it was like, hey, we're they're opening up the keys to the, you know, to the greatest racetrack in the world for us, and and it it was really to me one of the most important moments in in auto racing for me, especially at, at that time. And you know, Mike,
0: here's the reality. Mike Thompson, by the way, that's the voice you hear. This is Beyond the Bricks. My name is Jake Query. and once you had. The buzz that NASCAR was coming here. I don't know, and you may disagree with me, Mike, because you, you know, grew up around racing and around venues that hosted both series. I grew up in Indianapolis where all we saw was the 500 here. And so NASCAR, quite frankly, was. That was the good old boy sport of the Southeast that had guys driving cars with Kodiak on it and getting out and, and punching each other. You know what I mean? That's That was the stereotype. And so I don't know, from my perspective, and I know people will differ. I'm just going with my opinion or, what, or my recollection. My perspective was that the Indianapolis 500 was absolutely viewed and you know there was a pride in Indianapolis of it being the greatest race in the world and NASCAR really wasn't in my childhood the 70s and 80s a threat to that they were it was almost like this understood segregation of a venue and and fans and i agree with you in the fact that for whatever reason it became that there was this rivalry between the two circuits a big part of that i think was and you tell me if you disagree there were a million factors for that rivalry but a big part of it was with nascar coming to the indianapolis motor speedway coinciding with the same area the same era when open wheel racing split the rise of nascar's popularity through television ratings and other such things there were IndyCar fans that wanted that felt like, yeah, well, that that popularity came because you needed our crown jewel track to justify you. But as they the two series kind of started to go in different directions a little bit during that mid nineties, I think that created a resentment to a lot of people that perpetuated the rivalry. Would you agree with any of that?
1: I I would, and I think it's unfortunate that. You know, from a timing standpoint, the first Brickyard 400 is at the exact same time that IndyCar is basically tearing itself apart because you have that now. Do you, you think have that's that, coincidence? Uh, no, I, I think. Well, it is. Co- no, I, yes, I do think it is. coincidence Because there I is the it, school of thought yeah, with I some
0: mean, that that the France is. No, no, ha- I, I, I assisted do think in that.
1: No, no, I think it is coincidence. I, I misspoke. I, I, I do think it is coincidence. I think what I'm what I'm trying to say is I think it's unfortunate the timing worked out that way, that the, the first Brickyard 400 is at the exact time, basically, that IndyCar is tearing itself apart. So now you have that brought into the discussion. You have that exact same thing that you just brought up, which is, well, you needed our crown jewel track, and, and it festers a rivalry. I'm... I'm probably one of those guys that I don't know. I'm one of those guys that I'm I look at everything as the the rising tide rises all the boats. Right. And as to me, if if NASCAR is healthy and we have a great weekend this weekend, it helps IndyCar. It helps NASCAR. It helps the health of the sport. I'm for everybody being healthy. I'm not one of those guys looking at now. Do I think I mean, look, I was the biggest NASCAR fan in the world in the 90s. Do I think NASCAR does everything right anymore? No, I think they do a lot of things that I don't care for anymore. That being said, I want them to succeed. I want them to do well, just as I want, obviously, IndyCar to do well. But I think it's unfortunate that the, the timing worked out in the way it did. Just like you're saying that so many people looked at it as, well, I have to choose a side. And because I, like, I, I think I was fortunate that I never chose a side. I think I was fortunate. Like you said, that I grew up with a track, you know, an hour up the road where I got to see two great cup races every year. And I got to see two great IndyCar races every year. And to me, as when you're a kid, that's the best thing in the world you got four races a year right up the road an hour up the road i mean again i was seeing richard petty one one couple weeks from after i was seeing the answers i mean what's better than that um so to me i never looked at it as a rivalry i looked at it as man i loved nascar i loved indycar i loved formula one i loved all of it it was racing so uh, you know, I know that not everybody looks at it that way, but that's the way I always looked at it. Um, I, I just looked at it, especially in, in 92 when the test happened though, as, because it, I think it could have been a disaster if, if the top guys would have come in and, and been like, what are we doing here at IMS? You know, what are we, you know, they weren't like that at all. They were so respectful. They were so in awe. And I mean, it would have meant everything to Davy Allison to drive in the Brickyard 400. It would have meant everything to Tim Richmond and some of these other. I mean, obviously, Tim drove in the in the Indianapolis 500, so he had had a taste of it. But, Do you I think mean,
0: in the early tests, Mike? And this is where I'm going to lean on your. I mean, in a lot of areas, in this, I was not as tuned in at that time to the test and to the, you know, to the possibilities of the Brickyard 400 the precursors to it if you will when did we start getting discussion or analysis that the track perhaps was too narrow for those cars to effectively be able to put on an exciting race
1: well I mean I think well I mean the first test the first full test with the 35 cars there was actually a big wreck during the uh the drafting practice, um, there was, I think, a six- or seven-car wreck. I remember the late John Andretti was involved. I think he spun, and then several cars got into that accident. And I think that was the first, I think, inkling you knew that, that it was somewhat narrow um, for, the, for the cup guys. But I think, the, you know, I, I think the early races, the, the early Brickyard 400s, I think, were still pretty good races. Um I think I think it fell off a little bit. And I think obviously the tire debacle is I think really what what right. ruined the Brick Air four hundred as we know it. I think that was just a lot of people I, I feel really bad for the folks at IMS because of the fact that two of their crown jewel races were ruined in, in tire situations that were really had nothing to do with IMS. And they took the brunt of it, I think, and that's my personal opinion but i think they took the brunt of the situation at the brickyard and i think they took the brunt of the situation at the us grand prix and you know those corners have been there you know since 1909 <laughs> you know so it's up to the the tire companies to figure that out when we and, come back uh, the oh sorry go ahead mike no i was just going to say i think i think it's unfortunate that ims you know i think that would really turn the tide in the against the brickyard which is which is really unfortunate in my in my opinion
0: when we come back the vision becomes reality and the brickyard 400 and nascar run the indianapolis motor speedway the reception of it in the early years and the stars that were made and how that evolved and then perhaps began to slide at ims that and more when we continue beyond the bricks to the backstretch now with less than one half lap to go for Jeff Gordon.
1: He eyes turn number three. And listen to the crowd as they acknowledge Jeff Gordon when he goes by. It's an unbelievable
0: situation in Indianapolis. Here he is in the fourth turn. This is his final trip around turn number four and jeff gordon is about to write his name in the racing history books years from today when 79 stock car races have been run here we'll remember the name jeff gordon winner of the inaugural brickyard 400. part of the brilliance of bob jenkins back then was to say not when there are 79 runnings of the brickyard 400 but rather mike thompson He simply said when there are 79 runnings of a stock car race in Indianapolis, maybe he knew that it would get to 25 and then be, was it 25 or 26, and then shift to uh, the road course. But nonetheless, obviously not running on the ovals, but that's how it sounded in 1994 when Jeff Gordon won the inaugural Brickyard 400. Jeff Gordon was the kid who, Pittsburgh, Indiana, I know that, You know, people say, oh, his hometown of Pittsburgh. You know, he came here for high school, largely due to his racing career at TriWest High School. Was 23 years old when he took the checkered flag. Mike, the reality is he was not necessarily the Pepsi-swigging big-time star just yet. That helped catapult him. But he did hold off some of the biggest names in racing from both circuits in winning that race.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was really one of the biggest moments in his career one of the things that catapulted him i think the startup was winning that first race uh at the brickyard Uh, that was huge Uh, and you can't really you know nascar's i think been very fortunate in that they they sometimes have the right person win at the right time and they they get a lot of uh, i don't want to say accusations about that but you know raised eyebrows it just works out for them and and it it just worked out that day that the, the hometown kid is the winner. Uh, But what an incredible story. And it, it really did catapult Jeff Gordon, you know, to superstardom, I think, but that, but that race was so much fun for a number of different reasons, in my opinion, because of the fact that there were so many cars. I don't know if people remember the fact that, I mean, there were, there were 85 cars entered for that race for a NASCAR, you know, Cup race. 43 and,
0: started the race, yep.
1: Yeah. And and some of the people who entered that race, I mean, I mean Herschel McGriff entered that race. His first NASCAR race was in 1950. You know, and and guys like HB Bailey entered that race and Charlie Glossbach, Their first NASCAR races were in the early 60s. Um and and it meant that much to them to to try to be in the first Brickyard 400 and those kind of stories were yeah, I mean, Jeff Gordon was a big story and Dale Earnhardt was a big story and, you know, Rick Mast was a big story winning the the first poll. But for me, you know, Danny Sullivan being in that race was a big deal for me because here's here's a 500 winner who, you know, he's driving a NASCAR, uh, you know, cup race to. to because he wanted to be in the first brickyard 400 and some just some of the guys who were in that I mean people forget Jeff Brabham was in that race. Yeah. Uh, you know and 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 qualified quite well in that race. 18th I mean he was a, he qualified. Yeah, he was a first yeah, he was a first day qualifier, but You
0: know what's interesting is Danny Sullivan, one of two Indy 500 winners in that race, AJ Foyt who you mentioned was the other, but when talking about Indy 500 drivers in the original Brickyard 400 and you've got Danny Sullivan who finished 33rd, which obviously is not the final finishing spot, but a significant number within the Indianapolis 500. But I I think for a lot of people, Mike, in this area, in Indianapolis, I mean, there's no doubt about the fact that people knew about NASCAR, don't get me wrong, but some of those names you mentioned, this was the real introduction for a lot of people, certainly to Jeff Gordon, but even in knowing, and I knew – As an Indianapolis native, I knew who Bill Elliott was. I knew who Rusty Wallace was. I knew who Dale Earnhardt was, obviously. But I didn't know them just yet. I wasn't acclimated to them as race car drivers just yet. I didn't necessarily grasp everything that went into stock car racing until the Brickyard 400 came. And then all of a sudden, you had obviously by in 95, after 95, the split happens, And the '96 Indianapolis 500. You've got the IRL. You have the US 500 in Michigan, and NASCAR and stock cars continue to rise in popularity. And instead of running, and Bob Jenkins, whose voice you just heard, is a huge part of this as well. With you know all of the television programming that ESPN was doing, and before the Brickyard, ESPN is still running on tape delay, uh, and a lot of their races and you know, their ratings are starting to go up and people are starting to become more familiar. And as the split of open-wheel racing became more confusing to the passerby race fan, you know, all of a sudden, well, wait a minute, this, this NASCAR is running a lot of races in different markets outside of just the Southeast, and these guys are all American drivers, and they have sponsors on... The cars are painted in ways I like. What I'm getting at, Mike, is... For NASCAR and its rise, and we can debate until the cows come home whether it was directly linked to IMS or because of IMS or coincidental or whatever else. But the reality is the perfect storm is is, is now happening for NASCAR in the mid-90s to start to really grow itself
1: oh it was definitely a perfect storm again i mean you you have indycar tearing itself apart at the same time you have uh, you know new star in jeff gordon who you know was a guy who could take you know they they were able to take products to madison avenue and and knock down those doors and i mean it was a number of different things happened at the exact you know is a basically like you said a perfect storm everything happened at the exact same time and you know again as i said not very eloquently in the first segment um you know i wish that the first brickyard 400 wouldn't have happened at the time when IndyCar was tearing itself into two leagues because i would have you know i wish that that wouldn't be able to be used as a conspiracy theory oh oh, the francis were doing this on purpose because they you know because i don't believe any of that stuff um but you know, if, if it wouldn't have happened that way, and and the first Brickyard 400 would have been in 1987 or something, then we wouldn't we'd be able to remove that from the discussion. Is what I'm trying to say. You um, know,
0: Mike, let me tell a story here about for those that are unfamiliar about how big the Brickyard 400 was in its early years. And I realize that you know it's difficult to explain to somebody who's 15, 18 years old right now, right, how big it was. But I was born and raised in Indianapolis. I've only mentioned that 20 times so far today. I was born in 1972. And in 1998, I knew, Mike, at a very young age that I wanted to be a sportscaster. And I, in Indianapolis, reached out to, when I was in middle school, a television sportscaster here in town at the ABC affiliate named Ed Sorensen. And Ed Sorensen and Scott Hoke, who worked with him, kind of took me under their wing And let me just basically loiter. And that's what I did for many, many years throughout my schooling with my eyes on being a sportscaster. And once I got into my early to mid-20s and it kind of got time for me to kind of get it going from a career standpoint, Ed was able to get me a job at Channel 6, but I didn't necessarily go the conventional route, and so therefore... He was lobbying hard to get me hired on, and the only way that he could do it. And I realize now that he was just creating a position to help me and and you know get me going a little bit. But I was hired as a temp agency employee for hourly wage that was basically minimum wage, where I had to fill out time cards and take them into a temp agency, and then Channel Six paid X amount you know per week. And I think I was capped at like twenty hours or something. I say all of that simply to illustrate how low on the totem pole I was within the sports office. You had Jay back, who was the sports producer at Channel 6. By 1998, which is the year I'm talking about all this, Scott Hoke had moved on, but Dave First and Rob Powers were working there. So you had Ed, and then he had two people underneath him, Rob Powers and Dave First. You had Jay back and a guy named John Durth, who was the sports producer. And then I was there literally tearing scripts and writing out shot sheets for high school football games. That was basically my job. In April of 1998, the Colts drafted a quarterback out of Tennessee named Peyton Manning, who had a lot of promise about him, but the Colts were coming off a disastrous year, and they weren't very good, and there was a lot of curiosity about what this rookie quarterback who had a huge pedigree was going to do. And the Colts had a scrimmage in Champaign, Illinois, against the St. Louis Rams, who were coached by Dick Vermeil, and, you know, the Rams had a quarterback named trent green but he was about to get hurt i think and marshall falk was there because the colts had traded him and you know they were the rams were a disaster and they weren't very good and the colts certainly weren't very good and so the day of the brickyard about a week beforehand ed Sorensen says to me jake i know that you're a race fan and you like the speedway but unfortunately you can't work the brickyard and i said "Uh, okay and he said, the reason you can't work the Brickyard is because the Colts have a scrimmage in Champagne against the Rams, and we need to send you over there to hold a microphone with Dennis Goins, the photographer, and get a couple of sound bites afterwards from Peyton Manning of what he thinks about seeing another NFL defense. And I said, okay. And he said, but we got to send you because everyone else has to be here to cover the Brickyard 400. So Peyton Manning went out and faced – another team's defense for the very first time and then afterwards walked into a locker room and talked basically to a media scrum that consisted of three people, Mike Chappell of the Indianapolis Star and some hourly wage, minimum wage, part-time employee grunt that was usually tearing scripts at Channel 6 whose photographer happened to be there or who with a Channel 6 photographer. Because the rest of the sports world was covering the Brickyard 400, which was far, far, far more important than anything having to do with Peyton Manning and the Indianapolis Colts. That's the best way I can illustrate how massive that event was in 1998. And we had to leave early so that we did not get caught up in any traffic on the west side in our attempt to get the champagne because the event was that big. It was quite frankly and quite simply, Mike. You could make the argument. Would you agree? In 1998, it may have been as big, if not bigger, in that brief window than the Indianapolis 500.
1: Oh, I would agree in 98, 99, 2000. Now it's a little it's a little tricky for me because I didn't come those years. <laughs> um, I. 96 you brought up the 96 the day of the 96 us 500 and indianapolis 500 and and that's one of the darkest days of my racing fandom because i stayed home from both because i basically said the heck with both of you guys um if you guys can't get along i'm not going to spend my hard-earned money you know on either of you so i stayed home and so i didn't i watched from home for both of those races and then i didn't come back to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway until 2000, so that was the first time I came back. Um, so, but yeah, I I would agree with all of that, and and your story is a lot very similar to how I got my start in TV. In fact, Rob Powers, I worked with.
0: Yeah, Toledo, he,
1: right? He was a he was a Toledo guy. He worked at Channel 13. He was a competitor of ours, but uh, yeah, I I I knew Rob Powers, but I I had a similar story. I mean, I basically I got paid you know five dollars a night to answer the phone and do the high school scores and then lo and behold when you know i was 18 years old they said oh you know you're the racing guy you know all about nascar and indycar we're gonna send you we're getting you credentials for all the races and you're gonna do all the interviews and all this stuff and i'm thinking i haven't done any of that all i've done is answer the high school scores and you know i've I've done some editing let
0: anybody know right
1: i mean oh no yeah. yeah you you go up there so then then you're standing there with a in front of Dale Earnhardt after Dale Earnhardt's wrecked out of a race, and you're asking Dale Earnhardt, you know, what happened out there, Dale? I don't know. And then you get I don't know as an answer to seven consecutive questions. <laughs> right, right. And, and so you put that on the air in its entirety, and then people are like, did he answer anything? Nope. That's what he said. I don't know. We gave you – I literally got I don't know from Dale Earnhardt to seven consecutive questions. What well, happened out there, Dale? I don't know. I'll tell know. you
0: what. Dale Earnhardt was able to answer a couple things about the second Brickyard 400 and doing so under pretty unique circumstances. We'll get into that, and we'll take a look back at the Intimidator winning at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway when we come back to be on the Bricks. On the bricks taking a look back at the infancy of the brickyard 400 now of course known as the music city spike coolers grand prix that will take place on the road course at the indianapolis motor speedway joe hall when we were getting ready to introduce talking about the dale earnhardt win says the earnhardt win i broke my own rule i left the track then i drove back and into the park at 30th and lafayette road to watch half of the race the walk alone about killed me i'll tell you what Uh, Joe was not alone because, Mike, on the morning of that Brickyard 400 in 1995, virtually everybody in Indianapolis thought there was no way they were going to get a race in. There was a local meteorologist that said you had a better chance of winning the lottery than seeing a car fire up. And in addition to that, the race didn't even begin until 3.30. The television network had bailed at that point. The radio network began describing it and calling it, it was kind of thrown together once they got the track dried and, and, you know, let's go. So it was dark, not literally, but it was getting darker by the time Dale Earnhardt won the Brickyard 400. But that was a very surreal thing. But as is always the case, Mike, about the 500 – or excuse me, about IMS that is so special, that track always seems to find a way for the right people – to win races. And I think it's only fitting that if there was a NASCAR event on the oval at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway that while he was obviously still able to do so, that Dale Earnhardt was one of the winners there.
1: Oh, absolutely, cuz it like I said it meant so much to him. He was not a guy who, you know, was coming there and it, you know, say this is just another track. I mean, at the time, you know, he had not won the uh, Daytona 500 yet and and there were two races he wanted to win he wanted to win the Brickyard 400 and he wanted to win the Daytona 500 and, and it meant the world to him and you know he wasn't a you know one of those guys who was an overly sentimental guy outwardly but he had a softer side I think sometimes and than, than than he would all necessarily uh, you might not think um one of the things that that gets me it just I went back yesterday actually after Bob, Bob Jenkins passed away. And, and I was, I was watching, um, a race from May of 1994, uh, which was, uh, May 1st, 1994. And it was the day that we lost Ayrton Senna and Dale Earnhardt won that race. And Bob, Bob had to break the news to the fans during the race that, that Ayrton had passed away because, you know, at the time, you know, we knew he was gravely injured, but but uh, he passed away later in the day, and, and Bob gave that news. And and in Victory Lane, the f- almost the first thing Dale Earnhardt said was how much he was thinking of the family of Ayrton Senna, and, and how much Ayrton meant to him. And I think that shocked a lot of people because you know, stereotypically, you might think here's the good old boy from NASCAR. What does he know about Ayrton Senna? But I mean, that Ayrton Senna was somebody that meant a lot to to Dale Earnhardt. That was a a fellow champion, um, and. I think winning the the Brickyard 400 meant a lot to him, because of all the great drivers who had won there before. He wanted to be on a trophy at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and I, I think it was very special to him and and very very important to him to win there. It was
0: just over 26 years ago. As a matter of fact, August 5th of 1995. This is how it sounded in the Brickyard 400.
1: Dale Earnhardt brushed the wall of a second lap. Today, he brushes off all challengers, and Dale Earnhardt in the GM Goodwrench Chevrolet wins the second annual Brickyard
0: 400. And of course, at that time, Mike, whoever would have guessed that eventually, through a number of circumstances, which we will probably get into over the course of this week, there were things that led to the decline of interest and popularity of the Brickyard 400. But it certainly was an event on the oval. I'm talking about that had its peaks. I mean, that was one of them. Jeff Gordon's numerous wins, Jimmy Johnson's records, and, of course, Tony Stewart winning a pair as well. And then, as you'd mentioned, the tire debacle, and I think just after a while, the novelty itself, and I don't mean that to say the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is a novelty in any way, shape, or form, but to people who you went through the entire cycle of people that were saying, I need to go to a race and see stock cars on the the Indianapolis Motor Speedway grounds once everybody had kind of cycled through that, then new challenges came about. And so therefore we have the road course and Mike in the final 45 seconds or so here, the reality is if the road course race is anything like we saw in the Xfinity cars last year, it's going to be exciting.
1: It's going to be very exciting. That was a lot of fun, and I think it's going to open up a lot of new challenges this weekend, and I, I think it's going, to be, it's going to be sad not to be on the oval for those of us who love the original Brickyard 400, but I, I think we're going to see a lot of great racing this weekend.
0: It was last year in the Xfinity race, literally cars going side-by-side side of one another. I mean, and, you know, that was something from a stock car standpoint that people had been craving to see, and I remember leaving and thinking to myself – man if they can do this with the cup cars it just felt like mike it was inevitable that this year was going to be the year that the cups cup cars moved to the road course
1: yeah i and i think it'll be exciting and i think let's give it a shot and see what happens and i think uh, i think it's going to deliver this weekend
0: I certainly hope so, um, but it gives us even more to talk about, right? And we will do so again, folks, each night this week from 8 until 9 o'clock, Beyond the Bricks, Mike Thompson and Jake Query here. Sam Rumsa is on the big board for us. So tomorrow night in just under 23 hours from now, we will do it all over again, talking about the names, the faces, the personalities, and the culture that makes the Indianapolis Motor Speedway what it is. We will do it again tomorrow night. Thank you so much for listening tonight. That includes even you, Chris Bell. I appreciate your message. We'll talk to you tomorrow night on Beyond the Breaks.